Hi, this is Greg McEwen. I'm the author of the New York Times bestseller, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best. Have you ever realized that you've been working on the wrong problem? Maybe you were dialed in on developing a marketing strategy and later realized you missed the chance to connect with a key account. Maybe you were so preoccupied with finding the next important hire that you overlooked a critical new growth opportunity. My next guest, Greg McEwen, author of the New York Times bestseller, Essentialism, asks questions designed to focus on what really matters and then make achieving it simple and automatic. You'll get to hear Greg invite me to explore those questions to boost the reach of this podcast and how he had to say no to different, tempting, and seemingly natural opportunities in order to create the space to say yes to bigger opportunities on a whole other level, like appearing multiple times on Steve Harvey's television show. It's essential that you listen and apply what we discuss on this episode of My Quest for the Best. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Greg McEwen. Greg is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, and is the founder of McEwen Inc., a company with a mission to teach essentialism. His clients include well-known firms such as Apple, Adobe, and Airbnb, among many others. His writings appeared or have been covered by Fast Company, Fortune, HuffPost, Politico, Inc., Harvard, and Harvard Business Review, and many others. He's been interviewed on numerous television and radio shows, including NPR and NPC. He's originally from London. He now lives in Silicon Valley with his wife and four children. He earned his MBA from Stanford University, and Greg is here to talk about the principles of essentialism for small business owners. Welcome, Greg. Hi, it's great to be with you, Bill. Same here. Good to have you. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Oh, I remember uh, watching films that my mother had carefully curated, and one of them that I watched and came back to as well often was was the film about Gandhi, the same name, the Academy Award-winning you know, uh, classic movie, and that began a lifelong interest in his life, his approach, uh, how he how he thought about the problems of his life. There's a lot that can be said about him, but a story that I absolutely love about him that I came across when I interviewed Gandhi's grandson, Aaron Gandhi. Uh, Aaron told me that he said Aaron, Aaron was living in South Africa while his grandfather was living in India, and Aaron was beaten up by a gang for being too white, and, and then later by a different gang by, for being too black. And so he's just furious and angry as a teenager, you can imagine. And Grandfather Gandhi had the presence of mind to say, look, come and stay with me. And he had him come and stay with him. Aaron told me he listened to me for an hour a day for the next year and a half. In the midst of all of that, all that noise, all that pressure, everything that was going on in Gandhi's life, he had, he had the discipline to take an hour a day to be present, to listen, to be there, and just be all there. For his grandson. His grandson said, and I suppose not surprisingly, that was the turning point of my whole life. It was a transformative moment to be focused on in that way, to be touched in that way. I mean, this and other stories about Gandhi have been deeply inspiring to me. When Aram shared that story, what impressed you about the quality of Gandhi's life in giving that attention to his grandson? It's, it's a 
about his discernment that through amidst and, and the discipline to follow through on that discernment. Gandhi by this point has I mean literally millions of people who want something from him, who want him to behave a certain way. He has powerful political leaders and opponents, British Empire and the you know, people who are supporting him, including the Prime Minister in uh, in India. I mean this is the these are the top echelon. And then of course there are other world leaders around the world who wanted a piece of him. All the many, many followers he had. I mean, when he walked across India uh, in a demonstration of civil disobedience to create to, to, to make salt of the beaches, 600,000 people follow him. So, I mean, this is definitely a movement maker by this point. And, and yet he says, look, I need to invest this time, my grandson, here and now. There won't be, I can't put this off. Can't come back to helping him 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. To do this while he has the space to make these important decisions, to me, that's inspiring. And to make that choice, because so often, I mean, you and I are both parents. We know how hard it is just to squeeze quality time in on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, that's that's right. In my life, I you know, I don't have six hundred thousand people follow me as I walk across India. You know, you don't. The, the pressure is different. Mm -hmm. Yet despite not having that pressure, it's its, it's its own challenge. But I suppose what it says that he is working out of a different mindset mm -hmm. than the average person, because the decision is different than most people are, are making, even though he had far greater pressure than most people have. So that means it's not just his, it's not a circumstance that's enabling this. It's not just that he's sitting around going, yeah, I just, I'm retired and I have anything to do. Oh, my grandson really needs me. Okay, I'll make some time for him. It's not that scenario. So a mindset is different. And I've named that mindset now for, for my purposes, which is that he, he was operating as an essentialist. Mm. And, and that's absolutely true. He was, he was operating as somebody who was really doing three things in a perpetual, continual, disciplined way, a disciplined pursuit of what was essential instead of an undisciplined pursuit of what is non-essential. And, and that is true as, a, as a, a golden thread through the totality of his life. So the three things he's doing is he's, he's creating space to figure out what is essential. He's having the discipline and courage necessary to make trade-offs against the non-essential, meaning that you're getting rid of the non-essential, you're actually trading things off. And then you're constructing a life that protects those few things that really matter most. So he's removing from his life all sorts of clutter, and then he's using the space that remains to keep designing a system of life to help him achieve what he sees as being most important. That's the three things, explore, eliminate and execute. So those are important, and I'm looking to avoid using the word essential, but those are critical mm -hmm. factors in pursuing this philosophy of essentialism. And there are even more distractions today, especially in the United States, and especially for people who run businesses. What, what do you find is most useful for people who have lots of professional responsibilities in order to create that space to even explore these questions? Well, I think you have to begin at the mindset level again, because if you basically believe as an entrepreneur that the way to 
breakthrough success, achieve the promise of entrepreneurship, which I think is basically this, it's freedom to do the things you want to do and have therefore the money that you need to have to be financially independent, to be able to pursue the things that are important to you. I think it's a freedom promise. It's a, it's a way of saying, look, I, I got out from working for the man and now I am able to pursue the things that are important to me, maybe in my business, that can be important to me in its own right. If it's a mission-based uh, operation, if I feel passionate about it. And then also just beyond the business itself, freedom to uh, be with my family, freedom to enjoy my life, you know, make memories, uh, follow adventure, so on. Now, this is the promise of entrepreneurship. This is, I think, what enable, you know, helps people to get out and, and make the shift. But now that, let's talk about the reality of entrepreneurship. You know, the reality for so many people, I was just talking to an entrepreneur over the weekend, a smart individual, a driven, a curious, capable, uh, having lots of success in, 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 in some ways. I mean, he started, in my recollection, three different businesses, and they're all moving and they're all working. But he's never heard of essentialism. And so as I'm sharing some of these ideas of essentialism, he goes, oh, my goodness, this is my problem. That instead of delivering freedom to do the things he wants to do, what the businesses have actually delivered for him is constant stress in all directions. He's got so many different things going on. And everybody wants a piece from him. And it's just too much. Entrepreneurs end up feeling stretched too thin at work, at home, you know, with the, any of the different businesses they're pursuing. They feel busy sometimes, at least, maybe often, but not necessarily productive. They're sort of reacting all day long. At the end of the day, they're not sure did I get anything important done. They feel... Certainly this entrepreneur did, and I think many people listening to this will feel the same thing, that their day is being hijacked by other people's agenda. Some of that's okay. You want, you want to be responsive to your customers, but there's a different feeling when you just go, the things I need to get to, the important things I ought to pursue, but I'm just being hit by all these other things that other people think matter. And maybe they're being reactive too, and so I'm just getting buried by it all, buried by the non-essential. But it grows out of a mindset that says more is better. And I'm afraid that my, my reading of the situation, at least, is that much of the literature on entrepreneurship, much of the conversation about how to become successful in such a venture, is, has hidden non-essentialism buried in it spliced into the DNA of, the, of, of what's being shared. You ought to have many, many, multiple streams of income. You ought to do that. You know, and it's, it's just this constant expansion as if that will lead to the end result. And that's what doesn't happen. So there's a great big con that's being given to entrepreneurs. Well-intended, I'm sure, but it's still there. It still equals a con in the end. The undisciplined pursuit of more does not produce the freedom, the joy, the, the results that people are promised. It produces the kind of results we've already been talking about. People plateau in their progress. They do not break through to success in their business and they do not produce breakthrough freedom and space in their life. That's the problem that essentialism, the book that I wrote, exists to address this problem that I think is uh, very common for entrepreneurs. Greg, I think that what you're talking about starts at the root with defining what success means. And if someone's way too busy in order to even define what that success is, my goodness, you, you articulated so well in the book and even in our conversation that if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. The ability to prioritize, to protect your ability to prioritize is your highest priority. Uh, so instead of your highest priority being checking your email, 
your highest priority being responding to that last person who called you, that the highest priority is creating space to think, plan, to design. You know, even if the idea of designing the next year or the next six months, the next three months is too much, even if you say, okay, I'm going to design and be conscious of, of just today. So I can work out, look, today, let's call it like a list of six things that you say, here are the top six things I need to do today. And you, you just keep talking and figuring it out. Maybe you talk with somebody else. So you, you sit there, you write out all the things. Maybe you've got a list of 20 things, but don't get on your list yet. You do 20 things and then you say, okay, hold on. What really is essential on this? Is what's really important? And you, you, you keep curating it. And until you look at your list and you say, you know what, that six things is in priority order. If I do those things, let's say it's approximately three really important things that you want to do in your business today and three really important things you want to do in your, your, your life outside of your business today. That becomes the driver of this day. Instead of reacting to every non-essential impulse you have or opinion other people have for you or incoming email or texting, so on, you get to come back to your list again and again through the day. And it calms the whole thing down. And this is the question I would ask entrepreneurs to reflect upon right now as they're listening to this is, if you got three important things done in your business today, would you feel good about today? Most people, the answer is yes to that. And if you got three important things every day this week in your business, important things, would you feel good about the week? Yes. But what really happens is that we get a bunch of stuff done and the important things often just don't even get on the to-do list or on the mental list. And so that's where essentialism comes in. It's to try and get a mindset that says, we've got to be in charge of the prioritization of our life. Of our life. We should not outsource that to anybody or any group of anybody else. Uh, I think that the outsourcing of it is, is far too sophisticated for what actually happens day to day. Really what happens is just by default, whatever's most immediate and pressing is what takes over for many business owners and, and people who are managing projects. And it becomes a reactive rather than proactive, not all day, but at least in the beginning, like you're saying, to hone down to what would be the most satisfying and important work to do. And the aspect of that that I'd like you to talk a little bit more about, Greg, is the courage. How does courage fit into this? Because it just seems like you know priorities are priorities, why don't people just always choose the, the most important, significant priorities that are essential for happiness, satisfaction, and progress each day? I used to ask the question the way that you just asked it, uh, you know, a version of this question. It's either, it's either why on earth do people get so pounded and hammered by non-essentials? Or the way you said it, why don't people focus on the things that really are essential? I used to ask this exact same question, and, and, and eventually I realized it's the wrong question. It's the wrong way to frame the question. Because in fact, it's not hard to understand why people get distracted. It's not hard. It's actually, you know, you and I know the answers. So does everybody listening. I mean, they, they get distracted because they have lots of email coming in. They get distracted because they have a smartphone in the pocket that, can connect to any number of coping mechanisms of their choice. It's easy to go onto YouTube. It's easy to go onto Netflix. It's easy to go onto Reddit. It's easy to go onto you name it. It's easier to just let people contact you and you react to them. I mean, it's actually not hard to understand why people do that. What's harder to understand and more interesting to understand is why some people don't. Why in an environment where 
most people are going to be distracted. Some people aren't. Why in some of where most people are going to be spending, investing, overly investing in non-essentials, some people are actually investing in the essentials. That's more interesting. And that, of course, is, is what, that's really what the driver of the book is. Trying to understand, as I did for years, you know, going into writing the, the book and doing the research and studying the question is what, what are these essentialists doing? Mm-hmm. How are they operating? How are they, how are they managing to do it? And, and let me, let's answer this question. And we've been quite philosophical so far, right? But let's do it. Let's do this. Let's get practical and let's do it with you, if you don't mind. And don't, don't overthink the answers to the questions I'm about to put to you. And as everybody's listening to this, of course, they'll do it anyway. But I want them to concretely think about the answers to these questions themselves. Okay. So it's an invitation um, so, for everyone to play along at home. <laughs> that's right. So we're going to go through the three steps. Explore what's essential, eliminate what's not, and create a system for making it as effortless as possible. Those are the steps. But I want to show that that's like, they're not just three big general concepts. They're a process. You work together and you can apply very quickly within just even a few minutes. And so here's how we'll do it. So Right. So first of all, Bill, I want you to think about first thing that comes in your mind when you think about something that is essential to you, but you're currently underinvesting in it. It's something that really matters to you, but you know, I'm really not putting in enough time, enough energy, concentration on that item. What comes to mind? Don't overthink it. Sure. So thinking about having the podcast reach an even larger audience. Okay. So you want to expand, expand the audience. Why does it matter to you? It matters to share the very best ideas to stand out among the noise. And it's the kind of podcast I wish that I could listen to. And I, I hope that I, I bring ideas that people who are running businesses are able to use to do better and create better businesses, create a better environment for their employees. And that's, that's important to me. You, you want to be helpful. If you're creating the content, but it only reaches X number of people, then you're doing all the work, but the impact is, you know, that much lower than it could otherwise be. Got it. I understand yep. the idea. So talk to me about what does it look like? What does success look like in terms of if you were spending how much more per day focus specifically on bending the audience. What's the delta we're talking about compared to what you're doing now? How much additional time per day? Give it me in like minutes or hours per day. It really isn't that much. I'd probably have to spend another three to four hours a week, but on a consistent basis in order to build the relationships and gain a larger following and a large, you know, better platform. If you spent half an hour extra a day but you did it every day. You did it, you know, let's say five days a week. How would you feel about that? Is it a little, a little light? You still need a bit more? If I cut into every day, that feels a, like a too large of a commitment. But if I dedicate yes. twice a week and say I'm going to spend two hours twice a week, that feels just right. It feels exciting. Good. So now we've got four hours and you, you already divide it the way that you'd like to do it. That's a meaningful work period. And so now we have it. So now we, we have... An item that's essential but underinvested in. Mm-hmm. We've identified why it matters and we've said what does it concretely look like. So instead of it being a sort of vague sense of an area that's important but only in a vague way, we wouldn't know if we'd achieved it even. Now we kind of know what the, the price is, what we're trying to, the adjustment we need to, to, to look for. Now, that's step one. 
step two is to figure out something, you know, this is under eliminate, but this is the question I really want to ask is what is something non-essential for you that you're over-investing in? First thing comes to mind is I handle too much email and administrative stuff that I ought to offload more of. Okay, so how much time are you spending on email? Do you know the answer to that question? No, it varies. And my phone will tell me at the end end of each week (laughs) whether I'm up or down from the previous week. Do you do most of your email on your phone or is it, how do you think it's divided between that and your laptop? Yeah, I think that I do most of it on the phone to restrict it so that when I'm working on my laptop, I'm actually working rather than responding to email. So, um, why, why don't you pull your phone up right now and give us like a, a number of amount of hours that you're spending, you know, on the phone in the last week. If you go into settings, if you're using an iPhone, if you go into settings and then you look under battery uh, and then under battery, it will show you, uh, you know, what you've spent time on in the last 24 hours. And also now I've, I see they've updated, at least on my phone, for the last 10 days. And you have a, get to look quite accurately at where you're spending your time. Uh, so you've pulled that up, whichever version you have there, Bill. What, what, what's it showing you? In the last 24 hours, I've spent 12 minutes on Gmail. And in the last 10 days, I've spent two and a half hours on Gmail. That seems like And what else have you... It, yeah. What, what else are you spending time on there? What, what, you know, you've got underneath that, you've got a bunch of apps. What apps, is, are there any other apps on there you look at and you go, oh, that's not worth my time. I'm spending more time on there than I wish I was spending. Sleep cycle and camera are the top two. You know what? Messages also need to be included in there because I'm responding to text messages from clients as well. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and that's kind of in your head. That sounds like that's kind of been email time. Look, I'm responding to people, email messaging. Okay, so give me on messaging. What do you, what do you, what does that bring you up to? For my daily average with both of those, now we're over. So it's two hour, almost two hours and forty-seven minutes on messages, and two hours and twenty-four minutes on Gmail. An average daily amount. Yeah. So about four hours. Yeah. With those two things, and that's too much. Yeah. So, so that's you're talking like average five hours a day on there, and what's the right amount for you? What would make you feel like, yes, I'm being responsive, but I'm not being consumed by this. What's the right amount for you? Let's say half that, like two to two and a half hours. Right. So if you do that, if you, if, if you were to get down to, you know, let's say two and a half hours, you, you cut it in half, that provides you with an additional two and a half hours, you know, of time you'd like to reallocate. Right. Now, now by the way, I just want to just pause just momentarily to say, I, I didn't tell you what was essential and I didn't tell you what was non-essential. I'm not, you know, that's your job, not my job. But if you ask these questions, it reveals for you based upon your values, based upon what you're trying to achieve, based upon your own conscience and discernment, which things, you know, what the right balance is of things. And what you're saying as we go through this process, you're saying, I wish I was, I could take some of the time I'm on email and texting, you know, even at this point, even if you could only take four hours of that time. Right. And put that onto working on your podcast twice a week, you'd feel great about that allocation shift. Is that right? Agreed. Yes. So now we've basically done step one and step two. We've identified an essential. We created space to figure out what was something that was essential. It's underinvested in. We've identified something that's non-essential that's over-invested in. And now we're moving to the third 
and really important step, right? Execution. So there's different ways to approach execution. A non-essentialist approach execution in a reactive way, which is basically this. It's, it's when I feel highly motivated to do a thing, I do that thing. But if I don't feel highly motivated to do it, then I just react to everything else. And so what that means is that, is that just once in a blue moon, you feel highly motivated. And you just are like, I'm so motivated. I'll push everything else off. And I will work on this, expanding this podcast, you know, based. But it's only whenever that moment, you know, when it, all the stars aligned and everything works and you're just ready to do it, you go for it. And what we need, that's one way of, that's a system. The problem with that is that that system is producing a set of results for you that you have identified in this conversation as not being what you want it to be. So that's the only problem with the system. The system's producing consistently a trade-off you would rather not be making. It's less than optimal. It's a, exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a trade-off that it, it means that other people, you know, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. Other people are influencing that system, that prioritization. And, and by the way, it's not just your clients. It's not just the people tapping you. It's also, uh, it's also Apple. You know, they've spent billions of dollars creating a tool that lives in your pocket, that works as a touch interface, that's easy to use. That it, like this is a huge amount of effort, and that's a, nothing to speak of the of the carrier of your choice. Days spent billions of dollars too to make it available. What I'm saying is that somebody created a whole system around you, and you bought into that system as well, and you've added your own habits and so on. And now you have this system, and it's a great big system encouraging you to behave in the way that you're behaving. That's I illustrate all of that because what we need to do is create a new system. We need to create a system that works in your favor. This system, when you've created it, when it's set up right, help you to make the trade-off you've decided you want to make, even on the days you don't want to make it. That's the test. It's the day you don't want to do it. You need a system that helps you to do it still. I mean, even on a day you don't want to respond to email, you're, oh, I wish your dad didn't respond to text and email. You still do, which means it proves proof positive that systems can be built that work in such a way that they work even when we are not acting on them. They act on us. Now, our job is to build a system together that acts on you in such a way that you are doing the most important thing and you are not doing the least important thing. That's what we're trying to build. So you can see the execution, this, that is hugely important. We've got an agreement that the system is powerful. Now we just have to take back the reins of control and make it one that works in my favor rather than the one that has been there in default. That's right. We need to build an essentialist system, not a non-essentialist system. Well, let me ask you this. What percentage chance was there before this call today, before this conversation, that you were going to make the trade-off we just are now talking about? Very low. <laughs> yeah. Give me, give me a number. 10%. Yeah, good. That's perfect. Now, our goal is to push that percentage up and, and by, by making specific concrete changes. And, and I'm going to ask you these questions now. So if you could write a check right now that would automatically make this shift so that you automatically spent four hours less on email and texting and four hours more building your podcast every week for the next, I don't know, let's say the next six months. Mm -hmm. What is that worth to you? Give me a dollar amount that you would actually pay if you could solve that just by writing the check. So now we're not, we're, this, this, the solution I'm about to present to you, that was the first question. Mm -hmm. The second question will not cost you thousand dollars, but now we have at least a number in your head. I, you know, I, we actually, this has a financial value to me. Okay, so now I'm gonna put you 
the $100 challenge. Would you be willing to take a $100 bill, go get one today, Mm -hmm. put it up on your wall, and this is how this gets to stay on your wall every week that you have successfully cut out four hours from email and text and spent four hours building the podcast. You get to keep $100 up on the wall. But the first week that you do not complete that trade-off, you have to take the $100 down off the wall, rip it up into shreds, and throw it away. Yeah, I get that. I'd accept that for a limited period of time. Right. So let's say, for, look, but, but what's the time, what, what time period are you willing to do it for? Two months. All right. So we got two months. You have a two-month $100 challenge now. For two months, you've got to put this on the wall. Now, let me talk about, we've only made one adjustment now. We just, you just took the $100 challenge, that's it. That's the only change we've made in the system. But tell me what happens to the percentage. It was 10% likelihood <laughs> that you were going to make this change before. What just happened? What number are we at now? 99.9%. And it's just a small <laughs> amount. You've got to build a system that means it's almost effortless to do the thing you've identified. You take the discipline. There's two ways of taking this discipline idea. You can either say every day, I will discipline myself. I will work on this podcast. I will make it happen using my discipline. That's one approach. I don't think that works very well. The second approach is that you take the discipline you have today, just like we have in this conversation. We're taking some of our energy to construct a system that then works every day afterwards. So you use the discipline to create the system rather than using the discipline to make the thing happen. That's right. You want to use it to build a system that then acts on you day after day after day after day. So, so you, we've just done that. We've got a two-month challenge. You said you're 99.9% sure that you will do it. And that's a big shift right there. One single change, we made a shift. Now, there's lots of other things we could do. If you'd said to me, well, you know, that gets me to 80% sure. Then there's lots of other things we can do. We can say, okay, well, let's get an accountability partner. I find them, name them, call them up. We could have done it right now live. Call them up. Listen, I need to make a change. I need you to hold me accountable. Every week I want you to call me. Yeah, every, every week I need, I'm going I'm to just spend 30 seconds with you, but just I'm going to give you a yes or no answer to this. So that's one thing that you could do, an accountability partner. You could build a reward system in place. You could say every week that I do it, I'm going to what? You know, what's the fun thing? I, um, I know somebody uh, who who uh, wanted to, you know, exercise is essential for them. And one of the things they did, they said, they said they love to listen to this particular radio show. And, and they said, I, I'm only allowed to listen to that radio show when I'm running, when I'm exercising. Ah. That, was, that was one of the things that he built in place. So it's a positive reinforcing mechanism, but he, he's not allowed to listen to any other time. So if he wants to listen to it, that's where he has to listen to it. So he's building the system in that way. Another thing you can do is you can get a calendar on the wall. And I definitely recommend this for you too. And every day, where every time you do it, every time you trade off the time that we're just describing, you, you get to mark it. And so your goal is to see all of these X's in a row so you have a physical, some sort of graphical representation. Right, and it's adding those layers to make it more and more likely to succeed. Exactly. I mean, you mentioned one actually just in passing. You said, well, I could probably just take off these apps off my phone. Yes! I just was reading a book called Digital Minimalism. And one of the things he suggests on there is you should take all of the apps off your phone, everything. And then you put them back on one by one. Mm. And, and, and that's consistent with one of the principles of essentialism that I write about in the book. And it's called the 90% rule, which says if something isn't a 90% important or essential, 90% or above, 
then at least, I mean, I think in the book I say, then it just becomes a no, cut it out. You don't do it. But, but even now, if I was uh, saying that differently, I would say, uh, you know, at least you question it. That's exactly right. It's something, it doesn't pass the test, so it's got to be evaluated. Exactly. So it becomes at least a question mark. Do, do, do I really want, is this the right thing to be doing? Greg, let me ask you, when you've made some of these changes to really allow you to focus on what's essential in your life and in your work, what are two or three changes that you've made that have made the biggest difference for you in your work life? Let's talk about this principle of essential intent for a second. Okay. Because essential intent is enormously important to my own experience, my own life. Essential intent is identifying the highest priority intent over a multi-year period. So it's saying, look, right, there's a big risk. Success itself, it can be a catalyst for failure. Success can certainly be a catalyst for being average because you're just so busy doing the same things you've been doing in the past. That just consumes every waking minute. You're, you're busy doing all the things you've been doing. Mm -hmm. so I'll give you a perfect example of this. So essentialism, essentialism came out. It became a New York Times bestseller. And then, it, but let me tell you what the unanticipated, you know, or unintended consequence of that is that is that you have many, many, many different opportunities to pursue. Right. Right. And every opportunity that comes your way is more aligned with you than than before the book was written. So everything someone calls me about, emails me about, comes through the website is going. Could you do we, you know, could you come and do this consulting project with our company on essentialism? So everything is pretty well aligned with the stuff that I want to be doing. But you can't do it all. Or rather, if you do all of it, then you're just going to maintain the status quo. You're going to keep on doing more of the same stuff. And so I became really, so I, I learned this lesson. It took me a while to learn it. I learned that in my business that any information-based product or service, however small of an addition it is, is actually more like adding a whole new business. So instead of me having one business, I have two now and then three and then five. So if I, have a, if I offer coaching and provide a coaching service, well, that's a whole coaching business. And so I've got to be willing to start a whole coaching business. If I do workshops, oh, that's a whole workshop business. If I want to do consulting, that's a whole consulting business. And so it goes with all of these different separate businesses that you're running all at the same time. Now, let's add one more level to this. Also a nice problem to have, I suppose, but still a problem is, well, as soon as the book was successful, the publisher and the agent are ready to do another book. You know, they're, they're, they're just ready. And certainly they're ready after a few months. And then it starts to be, you know, every, every month or so, hey, you know, you ready? You want to do something? We're ready to do something. Now, that's such a nice problem to have. That's not how, how it was a few <laughs> years ago for me at all. That's the right. That's what you want. However, if you just go with that program, then the risk is that you just write the next book and in fact you write it too soon and you didn't it doesn't really say anything new and then it and then it's not you know it's not fresh or it's not well written or something and this happens a lot of the time many many authors fall into this trap and their second book is nothing like as interesting or good as the first book and and and, and it just is kind of a bust. I, I think many authors think to themselves my goodness if i say no to this opportunity when will the next one come along there's just no certainty around that so they take it because they need to know what's the next thing they're going to be working on. How did you find perspective in no to that? It was, it was hard. It's one I, I don't mean the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's been up there among the hardest things that I've done professionally to not write the next book just because. Yes. It's there. The opportunity is there. And because the first book was success, financial value of writing another book is higher. 
So again, in terms of like temptation level, it's very, it's high. I want to write. I'm built to write. I've got ideas I'd like to share. They're paying, they're ready to do it. That's what people would normally do. So all of that is, is the system in that place. And part of the reason I didn't go down that path is because I really have worked hard to understand the systems in my life. And so I was aware that was a system. There is an invisible but real system incentivizing a certain set of decisions. And so that allows you to pause and say, okay, do I want to do that thing that is right there in front of me? And not do I, so I want to do it. That's not, that's actually a totally insufficient question. If I just said, do I want to, I would have done it. Mm-hmm. The question was, is it right? Is it aligned with where you is want it, to be in six months to a year? Is it? Yes, there's a, there's, a, there's a goal element to this. And then there's just a discernment. Is it the right path? And I felt consciously, clearly, no. I kept feeling, no, don't do it. Simultaneously, I did have the beginning of this sense of like, you need to do something in television. And at first, I mean, that was kind of exciting thought, but like, it's sort of exciting, but sort of irrelevant too. It's like, yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that, that could be fun. But, and at first it was just a, you know, like a, a, a sliver of, of an idea, a tiniest mm-hmm. intent. But then, of course, you've still got all the work and, the, you know, doing conferences and keynotes and, and so on. I, I think that part of the reason I even could sense that is that I had eliminated a bunch of this other stuff that I was going to do. But then when I actually said no to the next book, when I was, just began the process and I said, no, I'm not doing it. It was within a few, you know, just days of that, as I recall, at least it was in days or weeks of that, that Steve Harvey, the, you know, the big, big, biggest names in television these days, he wrote a blog saying essentialism, you know, this book has changed my life. And I read that blog. And if I'd been working on the book, it would have been a momentary glance. Oh, that's interesting. That's fun. That's cool. Mm-hmm. That's great. And move on. But because of the intent change, because of this shift towards no, I'm not doing these things. I think there's something I'm supposed to do in television. Suddenly that was, I was aware of it. I could see it. I could notice it. And that, this has been like the last couple of years began in this moment. And so over those couple of years, I mean, I literally, I, I, I moved down to, to, toward the LA area, you know, working with a, a production company. I think I just did the last uh, Steve Harvey uh, segment just on Thursday, just gone. Uh, it'll come out in a few days. The relationship is, is, is good. We're just, you know, it's still early days. You know, there's a long journey. And that's why, that's precisely what I mean by an essential intent. It's an essential intent is a, a very clear, very concrete, long-term intent that it would significantly increase your level of contribution. I mean, it takes a long time to reach, I mean, even just this last episode, just this last episode, I mean, that will go out to millions of people will see that and be exposed to it and have an idea of, of how the essentialism exists and how to apply it. Or I could do executive coaching and reach in the same amount of time, just, you know, five people at most in the same period of, of time. Greg, the other thing that I find interesting is that when you set the essential intent, you have a clear idea of the goal of impacting more people, yet you didn't know necessarily, and you want to do it through TV, but you didn't know exactly who you needed to reach out to, who you're going to call. You just created the space for that to come in, and then you were able to recognize it when it appeared. Uh, right? Absolutely true that I did not know anything about who to call, how to approach it whatsoever. Intent definitely trumps knowledge, contact, talent. And so the goal is to figure out, you know, one's highest essential 
intent. Well, Greg, you've shared so many great ideas with us on my quest for the best today. I just want to thank you so much for exploring that with us and sharing such you know, detailed and fresh thinking about essential intent. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the, the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.